Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Donald Trump's presidential campaign is based in large part on his success in business, financial acumen and business prowess that will translate into new jobs for Americans and a healthy, growing economy. But our guest today says that based on a study of Trump's record owning and managing casinos in Atlantic City, the bet that he can create millions of jobs is a sure loser. Jonathan Lipson teaches bankruptcy at Temple University, where he is the Harold E. Cohn Professor of Law. His principal research interest is business failure, why it happens, and how the legal system responds. His scholarly work has been cited in many leading journals of law and finance, and also by judicial opinions. His latest working paper is titled, quote, Making America Worse, Jobs and Money at Trump Casinos, 1997-2010. And we are happy to have him join us today. Welcome, John, to ABI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Trump has rather famously put his casino companies into Chapter 11 four, five, maybe six times, depending on how you count, between 1991 and most recently as 2014. This summer, Hillary Clinton quipped that Donald Trump has written a lot of books on business, and they all seem to end in Chapter 11. And during the primary season, former Hewlett-Packard CEO Carly Fiorina used one of the debates to criticize Trump's history of bankruptcies in his businesses. She said, and I quote, You know, there are a lot of us Americans who believe that we are going to have trouble someday paying back the interest on our debt because politicians have run up mountains of debt using other people's money, Fiorina said. That is, in fact, precisely the way you ran your casinos. You ran up mountains of debt as well as losses using other people's money, and you were forced to file for bankruptcy not once, not twice, four times. Trump doesn't deny that his companies have filed for bankruptcy. He argues, however, that filing for bankruptcy was a common business decision, and he was smart to make the moves when he did. Hundreds of companies have filed for bankruptcy, Trump said during the debates. I used the law four times and made a tremendous thing. I'm in business. I did a good job. So let me first ask you, what made you want to study the performance of the Trump casinos in Atlantic City? I I take it you didn't have a bad experience at the blackjack table. Um, Just to to give folks listening a little context, on um, Thursday of last week, I posted a working paper. um, And the paper is is not, strictly speaking, a bankruptcy paper, although it had bankruptcy origins. Instead, what the paper does is basically just compares the performance of the Trump casinos, the three Trump casinos in Atlantic City, the you know Taj Mahal, the Marina, and the Plaza, to the other casinos in Atlantic City in terms of the number of jobs they lost and the revenue that they lost, um, and basically finds that Trump's casinos performed significantly worse. What did you find comparing the relative performance of the Trump properties against his competition? Um, that's a great question, and there were really two main findings. Um, the first had to do with the number of jobs lost. Um, I found, using publicly available data from the Casino Control Commission, that Trump's three properties on average uh, lost about 50% of their employees from 1997 to 2010, um, as compared to all the others in Atlantic City, which only lost about um, 35%. Um, To make this concrete, it means that Trump's casinos lost um, over 900 more employees per casino than the others, or, you know, a difference of about 37%. Um, so the, you know, 
his casinos just lost a lot more jobs. Number two, revenue. Um, Trump's casinos um, lost a lot more revenue on average than the others. They declined about 42% um, from 1999 to 2010 as compared to a 27% decline for the others. Um, again, to make this concrete, it means that the Trump casinos on average lost over $50 million per year um, more than the you know, average competitor in Atlantic City in that time period. So, you know, from a bankruptcy perspective, um, there are a bunch of things that are interesting. I, you know, initially got into this because of the bankruptcies. I had, you know, assumed that one of my colleagues at, you know, another law school had already looked at Trump's bankruptcies because, you know, gosh, we all know that, you know, Trump's filed a couple times and, and we all work from the same database, which is, you know, the Lepucky UCLA bankruptcy research database, so you can figure somebody had, had gone in there and, and poked around and uh, made some calls and didn't sound like it. So I started to investigate and pulled the dockets from the casino bankruptcies. And, you know, you say six bankruptcies. It's interesting. I mean, there are lots of different ways to count them. I count, the way I count them is sort of as if the casinos were always clustered together in a holding company structure, which is what ultimately happened. So that there was a set of cases in 1991 and 92 um, when they did file separately, but I would view that as one filing just because even though technically it wasn't, it was sort of one set of problems for the same you know set of casinos owned by the same person. Right. I figured that's what you had done. Yeah. The second set file, the second filing was in 2004. You know, within the holding company structure. The right. third was 2009. Exactly. Um, right. When he lost control to creditors, and then the fourth was in 2014. Now, the first sort of thing that jumps out at anybody who follows this stuff is that four bankruptcies for the same large company looks like it's a land speed record. Right. right? You know, there right. are certainly Chapter 22s in, yeah. you know, in, yeah. the, in the Bankruptcy Research Database, and there are a few 33s, not a ton. Like, there aren't any 44s that anybody has <laughs> been able to point to for me. Now, it's true, he didn't manage the debtors in the fourth case, but he certainly didn't set them up to succeed after the third. Um, and, in, you know, indeed, in the third, he seems really to have lost control of the company. So the, the, the second thing about the bankruptcy to note is that, you know, he's often said, well, you know, I chose to get out at the right time, and I, you know, uh, whatever. He didn't want to get out, right? He struggled to retain control of the casinos in the 2009 bankruptcies, and he lost to the creditor's plan that was ultimately confirmed. But he had his own plan. There was lots of stuff going on, super complicated, you know, set of negotiations, it appears, um, between, you know, competing plans, as competing plans, you know, will always produce a lot of complexity. Um, but he lost control then, and, you know, although he retained some interest, um, but he did try to hang on. Um, the other thing that was interesting, and this is what got me ultimately to the data on the jobs, is, what I was looking for in the bankruptcies was just to see, well, what happened with the employees? Um, you know, we all know that, you know, on the one hand, Congress said that they were creating Chapter 11 as a mechanism for preserving going concerns and jobs. But on the other hand, you know, it looks to many folks like actually, you know, Chapter 11 is being used to downsize, right? We're, you know, we're, we're you know, assets, we're exporting jobs, et cetera, et cetera. There's not a ton of data on that, but there some research that suggests that that might be the case, and certainly that's the anecdotal concern. So Donald Trump says, "I'm going to make America great by, you know, creating 25 million dollars, 25 million jobs, rather." And you know, I have a 
a business record to prove it. And so I look at the dockets from the, the four sets of cases, and it turns out that there isn't much that happens with respect to employees. Um, at least, you know, as far as I can tell, there wasn't a fight over, you know, 1113 right. you know, after to reject right. the you know, the collective bargaining agreement, you know, after 1113 became law. Um, nothing. In the 2009 case, there was a settlement agreement with Unite 54, which is the local. Um, and I'm you know, still sort of looking at exactly what that did. Um, I don't have this in the paper um, because it's only based on discussions with folks, you know, sort of off the record who said, well, um, you know, one of the reasons that the workers most recently went on strike is because they were upset that they did not get the benefit of some improvements at the casinos um, after they had given up a fair amount in connection with the settlement from the 2009 case. So, in other words, they did a side deal in 2009. It, I guess they, you know, modified and assumed the collective bargaining agreement, um, and the employees, the, the union members, gave some stuff up with the expectation that if things got better, they would be better taken care of. But of course, Trump was no longer around to do anything about that. Um, and so, you know, they were angry, I think, ultimately at, 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 at ICON and the, the folks who were controlling the banker, the casinos in 2014 when they, when they struck. Right. So anyway, so the paper, for, you know, I, I went from bankruptcy land, in, in a sense, to the you know, world of labor economics, because um, that's really what the paper is about. Although, you know, one of the points I try to make is that if the second set of cases, the 2004 case, had been successful, then he might have done better. So, you know, one inference you could draw is that, you know, he wasn't able to manage the bankruptcy process very effectively either because, you know, the company, his casinos continued to do quite poorly after the bankruptcy. So they, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't, um, you know, they, they continued their downward slide at a greater rate than competitors. One thing I don't understand, uh, John, is obviously there's, there's a record here of financial distress uh, beginning with uh, the, the 91 filings. But yet, um, I mean, didn't Trump's creditors know what they were getting themselves into when they lent him money over and over again? I mean, these are sophisticated lenders. Trump has made this point in, I guess, in his defense that, hey, these were you know, these are all big boys and girls. They played in this insolvency space before. You know, they used my name and they needed my name. Um, I mean, what, does that tell you anything? Why did people want to lend him money? Yeah, so I can't speak to the junk bond market, but I mean, it's, I think, important to recognize that early on, I think most of his lenders were banks. And later, you know, after he'd taken the casinos public, I think a significant portion of his debt was, you know, public debt. Um, now, that doesn't, you know, undercut his basic claim, which is that, you know, these all were sophisticated creditors, or at least, you know, the bondholders were, you know, represented by agents and, and so on who, who were sophisticated. Right. And I can't fully answer that question. My hunch, however, is that all of them were looking at the Atlantic City market and understood the following, which was that, you know, back in the late 90s, it looked like to see Atlantic City was going to get hot. And indeed it did. Right. So... You know, one of the reasons I start with data from 1997 is that was the peak year for employment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the casinos were doing well through the early 2000s um, in Atlantic City. The reason things got bad is because neighboring states licensed 
right. competing casinos. So Pennsylvania, New York, right. and so on. And they drew gamblers away from Atlantic City. And that's why. So all of them ended up doing badly by 2010. It's just that Trumps were much, much worse. He did worse relatively, right, compared to his peers. Right. So I think initially, right, if you, if you go back to the you know, original bond issues, I think the creditors, you know, like the shareholders who bought stock, all thought, well, this is, you know, a pretty safe bet because, you know, geez, casinos never lose money. And, you know, there is some reason to believe that, you know, things will actually improve in Atlantic City. Um, and Trump has a famous name. So, you know, I don't, I don't fault them for, um, at least, you know, early on to the pre-2004, having, you know, bought the bonds or lent him money, because you know, a long time had passed between the 91-92 cases and 2004. Um, I think the, you know, the more difficult question is, you know, really why... Did um, why did they uh, sort of allow the companies to remain to maintain the the structure that they had, you know, going into the bankruptcy? There were some changes, but you know, fundamentally, they came out of the 2004 case still with a lot of debt, less, you know, right. taking it from a billion eight to a billion four. Right. They reduced the interest rate, which was very important because they were paying pretty high interest rates um, prior to that. Um, you know, but the conventional story about, you know, the problem with, you know, the casinos is, you know, and this is what defenders of Trump have said to me, is, well, they just had too much debt, and they couldn't or didn't get rid of it in, you know, the 2004 case. Well, you know, that's what bankruptcy's for. Right. So right. I don't know, you know, why they didn't, um, you know, whether Trump, you know, just, you know, kicked the can down the road and hoped things would get better, um, and creditors thought, well, you know, goodness, we, you know, we are not crazy about Trump, they might have said, but you know what? We need his name because his name's on the casinos, and we don't, we don't have any other name to put on these casinos. We're not going to call them, you know, the, the you know, Bankers Trust Casinos or whatever. You know, we're not going to do that. So um, it's, it's a brand, and, you know, indeed he, in 2004, in the 2004-2005 bankruptcy, you know, the plan does include this, you know, royalty-free license of his, right. his name. Right, right. Um, Right. So it seems like he was able to demand a high percentage of the reorganization equity based on the value that his name on the side of the building was allegedly going to bring to the casino or hotel operation. I mean, that, that leverage was what he had of his name. I think that's, that's correct. I think that's a significant part of his leverage. Um, I think, you know, if you read through the disclosure statement from that case, you know, it looks like you know, they were saying, well, he put $55 million in new value in cash into the debtors, and it was on account of that, plus the forgiveness of about $16 million in, in, in notes that he'd purchased, um, that he retained, you know, the 26 or 28% um, share, you know, interest in the debtor's equity. Um, and, you know, the, the, the license, strictly speaking, was in exchange, you know, for, for sort of other, other benefits that he got. Um, but, you know, I think, I don't think the creditors behaved irrationally. Right. One of the things that's interesting about that plan is that they were given a choice. The creditors were given a choice. They could take, they could take stock, they could take notes, they right. could take some cash, they could take accommodation. And it looks like most of them wanted debt. Right. Um, and that may be because they didn't have confidence in the upside of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that meant that the company was still burdened with a significant right. amount of debt. 
Um, and perhaps that contributed to the casino's problems, although, it's, as I say, it's difficult to see how that would translate into the numbers that I have obtained from the Casino Control Commission because those are gross revenue numbers. So I don't think, although it's hard to tell from the, the Casino Control Commission's regs, I don't think those are, you know, post-debt numbers. Those are just the dollars that came into the casino. Um, and so, you know, if you're seeing his gross revenues decline, that doesn't have anything to do with his debt service, right? And his net revenue would, but his gross wouldn't. Um, and, you know, so then the question becomes, well, why were his casinos doing so poorly? Um, and, you know, that is hard to explain. I think the debt indirectly contributed to that probably um, because while it's true that it wouldn't directly have affected the growth, it would have affected how much cash flow the casinos had to put back into the businesses. And if you go and look at the disclosure statements and you look at the SEC filings, they're constantly talking about how we're going to make capital improvements, we're going to make capital improvements, we're going to make capital improvements. It's hard to know how much they put into right. it, but right. certainly when you talk to folks you know, about that period, they didn't actually put right money in. And, you know, then the question becomes, well, where'd all the money go? Where'd the debt go? I mean, a billion eight is a lot of money. <laughs> and we don't know for sure. But, you know, the Wall Street Journal piece last week um, said, well, by the way, we looked at, you know, the casino records, and I don't quite know what they looked at, and said he took, you know, $135 million out. If that was really, you know, cash, it was about 7.5%. That's a huge right. amount of money to take out if some of it was, you know, from the, from the debt. Um, so he said he you know, did we very well. We don't know. <laughs> no question, he did very well. He, he said he did very well. They borrowed so much money. <laughs> he did very, very well. I mean, one of the many you know ironies of the 2005 bankruptcy is that he lost his position as CEO. I think the creditors, you know, whether they were angry at him or set up, I, we don't really know because we weren't in the room. But you know, he lost his job as CEO, and that included a base pay of a million five. So you think, well, okay, that's fine. He's getting demoted. Right. But actually, what they did then was turn around and enter it into something called a services agreement, right. under which, you know, for simply chairing the board right. and making, you know, a half dozen promotional appearances, he got a raise. And giving his name, lending his name. Yeah. And, you know, that was technically something separate. But, yeah, I'm sure that that was part of the package deal. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I, you know, no matter where your views are uh, politically, I, for one, think it's great that bankruptcy has entered the presidential dialogue, even even a little. Uh, so uh, uh, from our standpoint, it, it's good that bankruptcy professionals uh, have a chance to weigh in on uh, on things happening uh, all around us. Uh, Jonathan, this is a very obviously provocative and timely piece. We uh, thank you very much for uh, visiting with us today, and um, obviously more study uh, could be done, an autopsy perhaps of any of those uh, filings would be a great read. Thank you very much. Yeah, I am, I am working on that. And yes, thank you, Sam, for, very much for talking to me. It's been, uh, it's been great talking. Uh, and as always, we thank our listeners. There are nearly 200 podcasts archived at our website at abi.org slash newsroom. So until next time, for the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Sam Giordano. Good day. 